1 John chapter 3. 1 John 3, and we're going to be reading verses 4 through 8. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Amen, dear saints. You may be seated. We serve an amazing God. For about a week and a half, I haven't been able to hear all this left ear. And earlier this week, I'm like, Lord, you know, it'd really be nice if by the time I preach, I can hear myself so I don't feel like I'm in a tunnel or something. And about two minutes ago up here, it finally let up. So uh, the Lord answered that prayer just in the nick of time. It's amazing how he'll grant us these mercies sometimes that are unexpected. But they're very sweet, are they not? Today's text is a fitting one for Reformation Sunday as we return to our ongoing series in 1 John. But before we do, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you that we serve a great and loving God, that you've given us every good and perfect gift in your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And we pray that as we preach and hear the gospel today, we will take in the person of Jesus and be more conformed into his image as your church and the individual members thereof. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. One of the greatest things, among many other, about the Protestant Reformation, which commenced on 31 October 1517, was the great clarity it brought out of the utter confusion and chaos of disheveled 16th century religion of idolatry and works and crusted and calcified traditions that needed to be broken up and cast away. And the Reformation did that. It brought great clarity out of horrible confusion and distress. The ordinary parishioner had no idea. The gospel was so clouded over. It was still there. God always had a faithful elect church, but they were starving to death. And he he also has always had faithful ministers, but the Reformation, of course, really enhanced the glory of the ministry. So we have so much to be thankful for. Analogously, the Apostle John, writing many years earlier in this first epistle, which I like to date sometime before 70 AD, was also very concerned that his fellow churchmen, the people to whom he wrote this general or Catholic epistle, to all the Christians everywhere, not be deceived by heretics and by the world and by the culture and by the false gospels that were being foisted upon them, even as the same thing is true today, even though those gospels, those false gospels, take slightly different forms. He did not want them to be tricked by people who were religious and claimed even spurious forms of Christianity, like some forms of Gnosticism in the first century and other kinds of heretics, who would seek to justify their evil deeds based in these 
loved gospels, these falsehoods that they were seeking to foist upon the true believers in the church. And so the elderly, perhaps not so old at that time, Apostle John, was just really concerned for his fellow Christians as he wrote this book. It's largely an answer of warning against heretics and heresies. So to think clearly, employing the mind of Christ as per 1 Corinthians 2.16b is a wonderful and blessed thing. And it's not only good for our interior souls and hearts so that we can see things clearly as much as we can, even though we're always in process through this clouded world of sin. We also have from this ability to think clearly very many practical advantages. We're going to be looking at some of those today. Therefore, in light of all that, let's make it our gospel goal this Sabbath morning, this Reformation Lord's Day morning, to lucidly understand the religious world through our faith in Christ. And with this in mind, we'll be studying 1 John 3, 4 through 8, clearing up the religious confusion. First, the doctrine. If you wish to use an outline, this is where we start. Religion is all a matter of the heart and its love predispositions. This is actually the most important place for us to start because it will always remind us that everyone, our own very natural selves included, all of us seek to validate behavior, even bad behavior, on other grounds. Oh, it's something else. Somebody else's fault, somebody else's falsehood, whatever it could be. But in reality, religion is a matter of the heart and it governs and dictates everything we do. And everybody's religious. There are no atheists. Everyone worships at some altar, worships some god, has some gospel. The only question is, what is it? And we're here to expose all the false gospels and extol the God and Christ of the true gospel with all our joy and effort today in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. In fact, the undeniable truth is that religion is all a matter of the heart, and its love predispositions. First, unregenerate religious people love and practice sin. Now, by accepting this truth, many of our otherwise naive bewilderments about the actions of religious people will be ameliorated and go away. We look around the world today and we wonder, how could people be so ignorant, so wicked, and so religious at the same time? Well, we really shouldn't be so confused about that or even so surprised. Last Sunday night, a few of us were watching a very good Ligonier history video where the historian Robert Godfrey was explaining that in the early 19th century, one of the most prominent Presbyterian churches in America, the Presbyterian Church of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, had hired a minister, quote-unquote, who denied original sin and the vicarious nature of Christ's atonement. And we were sitting around, how could that be? Especially back then, weren't people more enlightened back then? Well, the deal is this, dears, and this is something we have to always understand and accept. Unregenerate Christians, even, professing Christians, were acting then on the principles of who they actually were. They wanted a doctrinaire before them who would teach them false gospels and false doctrines and deny the cardinal teachings of the most holy faith. That's how wicked the heart is apart from Jesus Christ. Unregeneracy will lead to any level of perversion. And of course, today the the sewers are open. But that isn't something new. 
Some professing Christians even today believe that murder, sodomy, looting, lying, and injustice in the supposed garb of social justice is perfectly fine, and they will seek to legitimize these perversions in religious language and garb. So don't be surprised at that. Same thing was happening in 1 John, and that's why John the Apostle warns the true saints against all of those. And those people are adamant. They're not going to give up. They're committed. They are absolutely devoted to these false gospels and these demon gods. And we just plain need to understand that and accept it. The true saints, though, even as John strenuously sought to help them and us, were not and must not be deceived. We accept the reality of what's happening around us, but we're not going to share in it, and we're not going to believe it. And that's very important. Unregenerate religious people love and practice sin, but regenerate Christian churchmen hate sin and love Christ. Now, someone might say, well, Pastor, uh, I truly believe myself to be born again, and by God's miraculous grace alone, I am faithful to be in church and part of the covenant, and yet I still struggle with sin, and I struggle in my hating of it. That's fine. That's good. That's normal. That's the... Christian life in the sanctification process. Don't beat yourself up too much on that score. If you're faithful in Jesus and the covenant, and you still struggle with the levels of hate for sin that you want to have, and you need to have, and love for Christ, that's okay. Because as long as the bent of your heart is for that, then you're in the right direction. You're in the stream of gospel grace. And God is pleased with you. Not in you, but in Jesus and his work in you. And it's a beautiful thing. But it is still true that at heart and in the heart, you forgiven and atoned for Christians really do both hate sin and love Christ. And again, the main thing is the bent of our hearts. What is it that we want? It's our desires. What is our pleasure? What's our delight? That's going to expose the heart. And if that delight is love for God in Jesus Christ, and conversely, and obviously hatred for sin and all wickedness, then you are in a good way. And be encouraged in that. You might say, I'm not very far down the road. That's okay. Are you on the path? Who is Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, and the life? And you're in a good spot. The only good spot. Remember the context of today's verses, which is true of the whole epistle of 1 John. It is a warning against heretics and heresies. So it is the claims of religious people that we're most concerned about. We look with a different eye on those who aren't overtly religious, although we recognize that everyone is religious. But when people bring religious claims against us in the gospel, and they insist on foisting those on us, we need to be aware of it, reject it, throw it off, and condemn it, and expose it to the whole world. So, we have a different attitude toward others. Let's look at the verses 4 to 8, 1 John 3, and comprehend together how everyone may discern, D-I-S-C-E-R-N, discern true Christians from ordinary sinners. Since the faithful church has to get to and, and will set the standard for all people, it is remarkable to consider that by setting the standard of truth, which is Jesus Christ for all people, 
we're actually helping every person in the whole world understand order and dignity and honor and creation and the ways of God at whatever level they happen to be, even if they're in their unregeneracy. We help clear up everything for everyone. You know, the Protestant Reformation wasn't just for the Reformed in Switzerland or the Lutherans in Germany or the Zwinglians. It was for all the people of all the world. And the gospel today is still the same. It brings order out of chaos. It's the only thing that does, the true gospel, whether people adhere to it or not. It's a ministry of love, dear, since confusion, aimlessness, and blindness is the curse of the fall, which we were all subject to. And only Jesus and his gospel, through the ministrations of his faithful church, the pulpit first, but through her, the saints, as we go out and do your ministries, wherever it may be, in whatever realm of work or home or recreation or whatever it is, We are the only ones that can rectify that awful state of being. And it is a great privilege that God has given us to participate in this gospel work. Hence, let us joyfully and faithfully comprehend how everyone may discern true Christians from ordinary sinners. First, ordinary sinners habitually, H-A-B-I-T-U-A-L-L-Y, habitually sin, showing no regard for Christ's atonement, verses 4 and 5. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he, Christ, appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. Now, both of the statements on your outline there are key and important. That ordinary sinners habitually sin, and they have no regard for Christ's atonement. Unregenerate people exist in the context of sin, verse 4. And worse, at least for now, they have no regard for the cure, Jesus Christ, who alone can alleviate the sin problem, verse 5. But that condition is far from hopeless, because we do indeed have one who appeared to, quote, take away sin. And we know also from another place in the New Testament, Luke 19.10, that Jesus Christ came to seek and to save that which was lost. In verse 4, the Apostle John juxtaposes and converges the word sin, Greek hamartia, with the word lawlessness, Greek anomia, which in so doing, he was apparently seeking to remind us believers in Jesus that sin is not some nebulous, subjective thing, Rather, it was a violation of God's entire law, which first of all commands us to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and body, Mark 12, 28 through 30, and secondarily to love our neighbor as ourselves. We might ask why God the Holy Spirit through the Apostle John's words wants us to be mindful of this dichotomy between the lawless and the righteous, which is coming up in verse 7. Let me suggest three reasons. And it is okay for the saints to be called the righteous, because we're righteous in Christ alone. Three reasons why this dichotomy needed to be exposed. First, so that we would imitate God-honoring good behavior. And this comes from 3 John, verse 11 where he says as much. Secondly, 
He wants us to be able, to the best of our ability, to discern or identify who the true believers, the brethren of God's church, really are. Those who stay faithful in the covenant. And we can read about that in 1 John 3.10a. And thirdly, he wants us to love those people, first and foremost, 1 John 3.11. How everyone may discern true Christians from ordinary sinners. Ordinary sinners habitually sin, showing no regard for Christ's atonement. And true Christians sin also, but nevertheless practice covenant faithfulness in Christ. Verses 6 and 7. No one who abides in him, that is Christ, abides in him, keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children... Let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. So think about this with me. How can anyone practice righteousness, verse 7b, without being covenantally faithful in and as the true church of God on the Lord's days in the worship services where they're fed the righteous one, the only bread of life that can give them any righteousness in the first place, through the sermons and the sacrament. How is that possible? Answer, it's not possible. That's why covenant faithfulness is the key. And that's why you may be perfectly whole in the covenant. You may actually be perfect in the covenant, as King David was, simply by being a faithful Christian churchman, Lord's Day to Lord's Day, with a humble, gentle heart that receives the gospel and you're conformed more into the image of Jesus every Sunday. That is covenant faithfulness. Now, will this faithfulness completely wipe out all of our sin and prevent us from sinning anymore? Of course not. We remain sinners here on earth. If that wasn't the case, we wouldn't call on you to confess your sins before God and then you'd receive absolution every Sunday. If we had already arrived and no more sin, that wouldn't be the case. But we do continue to sin, but it's not a vicious wheel. It's actually progress we're making in our most holy faith. As from Lord's Day to Lord's Day, we're being conformed more and more into the glorious image of Jesus. This faithfulness in the covenant is designed to enhance our love for God through Jesus Christ and also to retard our, our appetite for sin. This beautiful thing of being perfect in the covenant is wonderful, but don't forget that our perfection is the person of the Lord Jesus Christ himself, the perfect covenant keeper. So when we talk about being perfect in the covenant, it's because he, the head of the church, who is with you even here today, is totally perfect, and he imputes legally his righteousness to you, upon your justification, where he takes, God's Spirit takes the righteousness of Christ, and applies it to your account. And his death for your sins is then what wipes away your sins. And his obedience to God's law, his perfectly keeping of it, is also applied to you, so that God the Father sees faithful Christian churchmen as perfectly righteous in Christ. What a blessing! That's a wonderful, liberating truth. But it's only for those who are faithful in the covenant. Those who want to be here, those who humble themselves who pay attention to the sermons, who appreciate them, and who accept the grace and glory of God and reject all false gospels. 
We hear him in preaching and we taste him in the sacrament. Now, once we've established this basis, this basis, now we can talk about other things outside the church, which most religious people want to talk about, how you behave outside the church. Okay, that stuff has a place, but it has to start here. Once we've established the foundation, we can talk about those things. But those things will also flow from a heart that's been fed Jesus Christ on his day in his house, the house of bread for all the nations. Remember, John wasn't writing to ordinary people out there in the first century in the Roman Empire. He was writing to Christian people that he knew and loved. And he wanted them and us to be wise about these things and not be taken in by heretics and heresies and false gospels. How everyone may discern true Christians from ordinary sinners. Ordinary sinners habitually sin. True Christians, they sin also, but we practice covenant faithfulness. Finally, the inclination of every heart demonstrates Christ or devil devotion. Verse 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And of course, this word practice is rightly pointed out by lots of commentators, and that is the, the truth. In a faithful church, though, how could anyone practice sin like that? It would be impossible. They wouldn't bear the gospel in that case. They'd be long gone. They wouldn't hang around. And even if they had the audacity to hang around, they'd be disciplined by the faithful church in one form or another. Now, I think verse 8 is a pretty severe demarcation, uh, but John insists on it. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God came was to destroy the works of the devil. That's a pretty severe thing, isn't it? These are two hugely polar opposite situations here. And this last part of verse 8 is remarkable, bold, profound, and helpful. And I just quoted, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Next week, Lord willing, I, I intend to take verses 8b through 10 in the next sermon and actually reincorporate this phrase of verse 8b because I think it's so amazing. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil? I ask you, dear saints, do you believe that? It's teaching us, verse 8, in its wholeness, two things at least. One, that all fallen sinners, including us in our unregeneracy, are in league with Satan, whether we want to admit it or not. You know, you'd ask a lot of unbelievers if they even believe in Satan, they're going to say no, but that doesn't matter. He still exists, and they're in league with him. And two, that Jesus came here to earth to destroy the works of the devil. I ask you, dears. Did our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, the King of glory, the Lord of heaven and earth, the Redeemer of God's elect church, the shepherd of all true saints, did he succeed in his mission of coming to earth to destroy the works of the devil? Now, if you ask a lot of evangelical people, they'd say, if they were honest, they'd say, no, he he didn't succeed. Look, there's still all kinds of evil around. But the Reformed know better. We know that he did succeed. Jesus Christ thoroughly thrashed, 
trashed and annihilated the, quote, works of the devil in his Christ's cross and resurrection, where his heel hitting the ground on that first Easter Sunday morning crushed the old snake's head and destroyed him and annihilated him and wrecked and despoiled his false and illusory kingdom that he never had a right to here on earth from the beginning because the earth was given to the children of men. And now that children of the church owns the earth. The meek inherit the earth. It's yours. It's not his. He's been, he's been cast out of it. So you might say, well, Pastor, have you lost your mind? Uh, what about the devilish works that are still around today? Aren't they murdering children? Aren't they butchering children's bodies today, trying to change them from one thing to another? Are they not doing all kinds of demonic things to human beings? Are they not pretending that social justice is the new religion of the age that we all must partake of? Are they not doing wicked, terrible, demonic works on earth today? The answer is yes. How do you explain this? Here's how you explain it. The devil, upon having his head squashed by Jesus Christ at the resurrection, was immediately cast into his death throes. He's essentially dead, but he is now violently thrashing about, ferociously seeking to hurt and damage anyone he possibly can. It's kind of like that picture of Gandalf in one of those Lord of the Rings where the big bad dragon guy is going down, 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 and he grabs Gandalf's uh, ankle. You might remember that. The point being that this dragon has been slain. He's in his death throes. And that's why in the, the, the last days, which we've been in for 2,000 years since Jesus' resurrection, are the hardest days and the most intense days and the most ferocious days because the devil is in his death throes. He's been defeated. The war's over. We are in the cleaning up, mopping up operations, which can be very, very fierce and, and very difficult. And that's good for us because as we do that, we partake of the, the glories of Jesus. We understand why we need him. We engage his power in overcoming the vestiges of Satan's work here on earth. He has no power against us. He cannot defeat us. We've already conquered him. He is a defeated foe. Before we leave this verse 8, Consider that every human being has an inescapable gravitational pull toward one of two polar extremes, Christ or the devil. Regenerate Christian churchmen have a stronger attraction to Jesus than we do to Satan, and all unregenerate people have no resistance at all to their compulsion to ally themselves with the old snake, Lucifer. Well, let's, as always, do some more application this morning, which is, again, a Reformation sort of theme. The Reformation brought preaching, good preaching, back to the church. It brought the proper administration of the sacraments back to the church. It brought prayer back to the church, dignity, honor, order, all good things. Confusion was, was banished. There's still always something that we need to work on, that's for sure. But let us here today understand why faithful churchmen should never be confused about religion. When I'm finished with my ministry and any who've sat under my ministry for any amount of time, 
I don't want any of them confused about religion. Now, you might be confused about mathematics or something else. But I can't help you with that. But I can definitely help you not to be confused about religion. It's not that complicated. The emphasis here is on the word faithful. Why faithful churchmen should never be confused. All other religious people who sit at home on Sunday or pretend they don't need the church or the gospel or Jesus Christ are too good for all those things. They are confused and they should be. It's only right that they are. If they weren't confused, something would be wrong. It's actually good for them that they're confused because that might bring them to their senses, speaking in normal terms. Spirit-filled, Christ-loving Christian churchmen are not to be befuddled by anything of significance in religion. A little while ago, Elder Wayne led us in that glorious 451 creed of the Chalcedonian. Wow, that is a great creed written just 21 years after Augustine's death. And you can see Augustine all through that creed. And that creed there is really good. Now you might say, that's one big, long theological sentence. Yeah, you'd be right. But there's a lot of gold stuck in that sentence. You are not to be befuddled by anything of significance. Now, lesser matters may still elude us. That's for sure. I mean... I'm among those who are still trying to figure some things out, and I suspect you are too. But the big issues must be locked down tight in our hearts regarding Jesus, the church, the gospel, the Lord's day is worship, and the means of grace. The important things of life have to be understood. Otherwise, we will be poverty-stricken. Let us then make it our biblical, spiritual, and ecclesiastical rationale for understanding why faithful churchmen should never be confused about religion. First, because they, we, alone, are given assurance of our Heavenly Father's love. Let me ask you this, dears. How could serious confusion and comforting assurance abide in us? Do you see that word earlier in 1 John 3 here? Who abides in Christ? How could that abide in us at the same time? How could serious confusion and comforting assurance of God's love abide in us at the same time. The properly covenanted and baptized Christian church members, who by God's miraculous grace alone are, as I have several times told you, you are the only persons on earth who may possess solid, objective assurance of God's love and pardon of sins in Jesus' blood. You're the only one. I'm not saying you in this church are the only ones, but I'm saying those who are properly covenanted in a faithful gospel church where the word of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the person of Jesus preached faithfully in the ministration, the sacrament is done right, and that the minister is really called by God. You're the only people that can have that assurance. Now, I'm not denying that there are other people who are the objects of God's love. I'm not denying that. There may be, there probably are, but they cannot have that assurance. That's one of the reasons we need missions, we need evangelism, so that the true church, the Reformed Church, can spread all around the world. So that people actually have a home, a place, a base, a headquarters, an object, a place where they can learn and grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, indeed. The Apostle John is really adamant here in this epistle that those of his audience who are in Christ and his church 
were not to be confused or deceived by any of the heretics. And I don't want you to be confused or deceived by the heretics either. And the heretics are sly. They'll say, yeah, we're not quite that bad yet. But they're on their way. They're in the way. They'll follow their master right to hell. They might say, yeah, we haven't come that, that far. But they're going that way. But the heretics are sly. And they want to deceive you. I mean, Satan really doesn't care about the anyone out there. He's only concerned to discourage the true saints and the true church. And John goes to great lengths to draw a clear division between the real people of, the, of God in the church and everybody else. Why do you do that? Well, the Holy Spirit assigned him that task as the apostle penned the five chapters of the sweet but powerful book. So if you today are in Christ and his church faithfully, you want to be here, you're submissive, your heart resonates with the truth, you reject the false gospels, if you're faithful to your covenant promises, God wants you to know that he loves you and that all good things are yours in Christ. I've got to tell this little story, not in my notes. So I go somewhere this week with Leslie and I go in a room and I see a sign on the, the mirror. Jesus loves you. I know that's true. But that's not, that's not universally true. There is a delineation. God has true covenant love for his people. And anyone who wants to be God's child can be. You want to be a child of God? You can be. It's your will. Do you will it? Do you want it? No one's stopping you. You're commanded to be a child of God. You're commanded to repent of all your sins. You're commanded to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. You're commanded to go and be the church you are. It's all up to you in that sense. No one's stopping you. On the judgment day, you will have no recourse. You can't say, oh, but God, you are sovereign and you elected. No, you didn't want it. Now, I hope that's not true of any of you here, but that's the truth. That's the gospel. That's how serious these matters are. Why faithful churchmen should never be confused about religion, because they, we alone, are given assurance of our Heavenly Father's love, and they, we, respond to it with even more affection for Christ. Do you remember that last Sunday, if you were here, we asked the question, what good is our Christianity if we don't love God? What good is it? What good is our Christianity if we are just moral and ethical and decent and memorize the Bible or, or do things uh, in the culture? What good is that? What good is our religion if we don't love God? And we reference the primacy of love from 1 John 13, especially verses 1 to 3, where Paul said, if I can know every miracle, every mystery, if I could give my body to be burned, if I could do anything but don't have love, it's worthless. Love for God first and foremost, and then love for neighbor with the church neighbors always taking the priority, Galatians 6.10. On this Reformation Sunday, is it not all the more appropriate that we come back to this glorious theme of order out of confusion? 
Anybody remember what Elder Wayne read as the call to worship? God is not a God of confusion, but of order. This is a beautiful God. The Reformers, like all true Christians, were people of love. And they understood that, perhaps more than most, love and confusion just don't mix. You want to hate people, you want to despise them, then confuse them with false doctrine. You want to love them, teach them the creeds, the catechism, the confession. Teach them the truths of your most holy faith. Raise your children in this glorious and wonderful truth. Listen, the world out there in which you live wants to confuse you, is doing everything it possibly can to do so, and especially with regard to religion, don't take the bait. Resist it. Instead, recognize and avail yourself of the simplicity of the church's covenant life. For in that warm and tender place where you are right now, you will know the love of a father who sent his only begotten son, beloved of him, to shed his precious blood for us sinners and to rise on the third day for our justification, crushing Satan's head. Let us embrace him with joyful faith today. Beloved, clearing up the religious confusion is an important endeavor because until or unless this is done through Christ and his church, everyone in all the world is bound to religious confusion. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you brought us out of it and that you've given us order and good perspective in Jesus Christ. We thank you that you call your church together, you call the deacons and the elders and the pastors to serve your church, to build them up in the most holy faith. Lord's Day to Lord's Day. We thank you that nothing good is kept from us, that you have provided us a very clear path in Jesus. Help us cling to him and not be drawn to idols, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.